0: This morning we are turning our attention to the words of Isaiah 63. You'll find that in the Pew Bible on page 739 if you're using those. And as always, we encourage you to have a Bible open as we go along and follow the words of the text uh, together. Isaiah 63. As you turn there, let me remind you what we did last week. We examined uh, chapter 62, and we really saw it divided into two very clear sections and learned two clear lessons, the first consistent with this portion of Isaiah, which began in chapter 40 and continues through chapter 66. We saw last week the love that God has for his people And if you and I are indeed among the people of God, then the love that He has for each one of us in the person of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw the great marriage theme common in the scriptures that the Lord has betrothed to Himself this people. He takes great delight in her, in His church, in His people. He rejoices over His people, as Zephaniah even says, with singing. His commitment is that he would see his own righteousness shine in us and through us that all the world may know that he is our God and he is making us beautiful in his son. In fact, he already has through the righteousness that he has given to us uh, in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So in those first, really those first uh, five or six verses, um, I guess it was five verses We saw his great love for his people. Then, beginning in verse 6 through verse 12, last week we saw the call for his people to watch and pray. Now, we acknowledge that that primarily has an application, of course, to the prophets that he raised up over the course of redemptive history, to the apostles and the prophets and evangelists of the New Testament, and by extension to all who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are as watchmen, he says, set up on the walls of the city. We are called, as you'll remember, to give him no rest day and night. We are to cry out to him that again, as he desires his righteousness to be seen in us so that we would desire equally that righteousness as well. We are therefore to give him no rest in these things until he establishes. Verse seven says, Jerusalem And makes it a praise in the earth. That is his church. Now when I hear those words, the words watch and pray, I can't help but think of the words that our Savior spoke to his disciples. Those three especially, but all of his disciples ultimately who were there on the night in which he was betrayed when he went to pray. And you remember in Matthew 26, these words recorded and he came to the disciples And he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray, he says, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. This calling that we have, and I think all of us do, this calling that we have to be watchmen on the wall is a hard calling in the midst of the fallen world in which we live. But this is what I believe the Lord calls us to. We're to watch for the enemies of the Church of Christ. We're to watch and protect his elders, that church that he has committed to our care. We're to watch for the enemies who would come in and seek to sow seeds of discord. We're to watch for his appearing, for his second coming. And we are to pray fervently that God "...would establish his church in the midst of this world and bless her so that we might shine with the righteousness of Christ for all who would see." That's what it reminds me of, that similar word to the disciples that Jesus spoke, watch and pray, watch, watch and pray. Now we come to chapter 63, after the study of chapter 62, and this chapter as well, I think, can be divided into two sections it will be the first one the first six verses that we'll study this morning and we'll look at the latter part of it along with chapter 64 actually it's really one lengthy prayer that we have in uh, verse 7 of chapter 63 through the end of chapter 64 and we'll turn our attention to those verses the next time we meet in our study of Isaiah now let me give you a warning the sudden change in these first six verses may seem out of place And may even seem to us to be shocking as we read them. But as we will see, it follows immediately on the verses at the end of chapter 62. So it fits, and I hope you'll see with me how it fits, and be greatly encouraged by what the Lord says in these verses as well. Please stand then, if you will, in chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. Chapter 63, verse 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Bosra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who tread in the winepress? I have trodden in the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Thus far the reading of God's word, would you uh, hear uh, as we pray, All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Father, this is true of all that you have spoken to us in your word. You have revealed yourself to be a God who has promised and provided for us rich and great blessings for those who are in Jesus Christ. And you have equally promised and will indeed one day pour out the full measure of your wrath against all of those who rebel against you. And we pray, Father, that you might so remind us of these truths today, that our hearts would stand in all of you and that we would rejoice in all that you have done for us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What kind of God is this with whom we have to do? It's an old sort of fashioned way of asking The question, who is this God that we speak so often of? We are in the midst of a section in our study of the book of Isaiah, where we are seeing his character and nature with regard to his commitment to his people, to save them, to redeem them, to love them, to protect them and to provide for them a glorious heritage, heaven itself, where his people may dwell with him and he with them forever. And ever. And we have seen so clearly in our study of this last part of Isaiah how the Lord has done this through his servant, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news of salvation. This is why Isaiah the prophet is called the prophet of the gospel, where we see the full measure and comfort of Isaiah's words in chapter 40, the Lord's words, really, through him. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What we've been doing over the last several weeks is simply going through an exposition of these wonderful hope filled words and more recently focusing our thoughts on what the Lord has prepared for us his people something far greater than an earthly city to which the people to whom he is writing some almost 200 years in advance uh, that will be returning to a literal physical city. God has prepared something far more glorious for them. The glories of heaven itself he's setting before his people in these verses. But now, suddenly, we have these interesting, unsettling, and troubling pictures of blood and wrath and vengeance and destruction. Indeed, what kind of God is this with whom we have to do? He is this kind of God as well. He is a God who is filled with wrath and anger and hatred against sin. As much as he is a God filled with love and patience and kindness towards those upon whom he has set his favor, He is a God who hates his enemies and who has promised that he will judge and punish them to the fullest. And here's the point, I think, for us as believers. For the fullness of his blessings can never and will never be fully realized and known by his people unless he can also utterly destroy his enemies and ours. We will never truly know shalom or peace that passes understanding until all of his enemies and ours are made his footstool, which is a picture of total domination of all of those who stand opposed to him. It is not enough, then, that God would promise and bless us so richly as he has told us in the verses we've studied Since the beginning of chapter 40, he must also utterly destroy our enemies and have the full victory over them. That's why we are where we are this morning in these first six verses. they are only six verses, and it makes sense for us instead of dividing it just simply to go through it as we go verse by verse and to see the story that unfolds here And it really is a story. It's a conversation, as you may have picked up when I read the words. This is a conversation between two parties. And it is important for us to note this very truth. This is a conversation between the watchman of chapter 62 and this victorious champion and warrior who's returning from a triumphant victory over all of his enemies, Look with me, if you will, at verse 11 of chapter 62, right before the verses we're studying this morning. Behold, the Lord, Isaiah writes, has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. That is the language of one calling the watchman, the Lord calling the watchman to declare that the victory has indeed been won. And so one of the parties is, of course, the watchmen who are on the wall. They're watching for the enemies who would come and attack. And as they're watching, they look out over the walls of the city and they see at a distance one who is coming, who is not an enemy, but one who is a victor, a strong warrior one who is coming in victory and power. And they declare then, verse 11, that the Lord's salvation is coming, his final triumph and victory is here. Those are the two parties, the watchman and the victorious warrior king, who no doubt is the servant, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so back and forth, two questions are asked, two answers are given And they are very instructive for us this morning. And so let's look at those. In verse 1, you have the first question. The question takes up almost the whole of verse 1 until the answer at the very end is given. But look with me at the watchman's first question. Who is this as they look out and see him approach the city? Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel and marching in the greatness of his strength. Notice with me first, he sees the one who is coming, coming from a particular direction. He's coming from Edom, and he's coming from Bozrah. Bozrah is recognized as the capital of Edom. Edom is really a nation that is are the descendants of Esau. You remember, no doubt, in our study in Sunday evenings as uh, uh, The fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have been uh, studied as Pastor Fisher is leading us through that study, that Edom are the descendants of Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. Now, while we're in that study now, there seems to be reconciliation. The two brothers have been uh, coming together. There seems to be some measure of peace. But as you read the whole of the scriptures, that is but a, a small picture, really, of what God wants us to understand about Esau and Edom, those who come from him. They really represent in the Bible a picture of all of those who hate the Lord. Esau, remember, sold his birthright to Jacob. He despised the Lord's blessing. And though there is good news in what we're studying now, overall, the picture of the Old Testament is that Edom rises to a picture of representative of all the nations of the earth who are opposed to God. Bozra is its capital city. And from the very center, Isaiah says, from the very heart of this land is wickedness. And hatred of God. And so he's coming from Edom. He's coming from Bozrah as a representation of coming from the nations who despise the Lord. That's the picture Isaiah wants us to see here. But notice not only the direction as they refer this question to the one approaching. But also notice their uh, notice of the apparel and the victorious stride in which this warrior walks. He who is splendid in his apparel. The language here refers to a colorful garments, glorious and bright, fit for a king and a warrior. And he walks, they say, with a majesty and a confidence and a palpable strength. He walks with a stride that indicates not only strength, but victory over all of his enemies They're enamored by what they see. They wonder who this is that is approaching the city. They have a sense clearly that he is one who is for them and not against them. Notice then what the victorious warrior's response is to this great question. It is simple. It is I speaking in righteousness and mighty to save. Perhaps as I read those words, it is I, your mind immediately goes to God's own self-revelation in the book of Exodus chapter 3 to Moses. When Moses asks the Lord, who shall I say sends me to Pharaoh? The Lord says, I am send you. Tell Pharaoh, I am has sent you. This is the self-existent one, the one who needs no other around him, the one who is uh, self-sustaining, who needs no other. This is the one who speaks. It is I. Many commentators then see this indication of the divine here, that the one speaking is the Lord himself, the servant of the Lord, as he speaks in righteousness and is mighty to save The speaking in righteousness, I think, relates right back to chapter 62, verse 1, where the servant, I think, here in 62 says, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as the brightness. The one who speaks is the great prophet of the Old Testament. It's our Lord Jesus Christ continuing to speak, and everything he speaks is right and true. And so he is a faithful, righteous warrior and servant, and he is mighty to save. He is alone able to save, able to conquer his enemies. And so this first question and answer gives us a very clear picture of who this is. But there's more that we need to know, which leads us to the second question in verse 2. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like his who tread in the winepress. You can ask this question a different way. It's really the shock of seeing what they see as this warrior draws closer to the walls of the city. The colors that they perhaps imagined were bright and glorious from a distance are now in full view. And essentially what they're asking is, why are you covered in blood? Why are you covered in blood? It's an incredible, really, play on words. As you understand the meanings of Edom and Bozrah, Edom is a reference to the redness of the soil in that land. And so the reference here to why is your apparel red is a reference to Edom and the garments who is covered with blood like one who treads in the winepress. Bozrah means winepress or one who treads in the winepress. And so there's a play on words, but an image and a picture that the one who is returning from this victory has thoroughly conquered his enemies. The redness is the blood of his enemies, Edom representative of all rebellious nations that have ever existed. And the treading in the winepress is the picture of the one who has completely dominated his enemies as the treader in the winepress dominates the grapes from which all of the Juices of the grapes spill. Here, the picture, of course, is the blood that spills. Later in verse six, the spilling of the lifeblood upon the earth itself. It's a graphic picture, but it's an important picture. It's a picture of dominance, a picture of the Lord's absolute uh, control over and defeat of all of his enemies. Edom, as you think about it being a picture of all who hate God, is viewed that way in many portions of God's word. One entire book of the Old Testament is dedicated to God's judgment upon Edom, representing his judgment upon the wicked. The book of Obadiah, one chapter, in all of it, is about his judgment against this nation, which again becomes this picture. Earlier in Isaiah, with respect to His judgment against Edom in Isaiah 34, this is what the prophet writes, for my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens, and behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom and upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. You see, that's the picture. That's the picture that the, the, the watchmen are seeing from the, the towers there, the walls of the city. But the Lord himself, the servant, then answers the question and provides even more detail that is, again, very, very helpful. Look at the response beginning in verse 3. He says, I have indeed come. I've come from the treading out of the grapes in the winepress, but I've come alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath and their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Again, the treading of the winepress is a is an image in the Old Testament it's also an image in the New Testament. In the book of Lamentations, it says this in chapter 1, verse 15. Here the Lord speaking about his judgment and discipline of his own people. The Lord rejected all of my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. It's a picture of his wrath being poured out upon a people, in this case, the punishment of his own people. In Revelation 14, another parallel passage to this one, and similar to the one read from Revelation 19, we read these words. Again, notice the graphic imagery of these words, the imagery of this Old Testament language coming forth now in Revelation. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven And he, too, had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. It's the harvesting, if you will. And the picture is of of cutting away these grapes, these grapes that are destined for God's judgment. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth. And gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. Don't get lost in the imagery of length and height, etc. The picture here is the same as the picture here in Isaiah 63. It is a picture of God's wrath and of his judgment falling upon the wicked, his righteous indignation against sin and against sinners. In verse 5, as this imagery continues, we have a repetition, almost word for word, of the language of Isaiah 59, which was read earlier. And the point there is, as you'll remember there and here, is that the Lord did it alone There was no one to help him. His own arm accomplished this salvation. There was no one who can triumph with him over the enemies. One commentator notes, and I think it's worth noting, that perhaps Isaiah has in his mind as he writes these words, the imagery of Moses as he was there on the mountain above the battle of the Amalekites in Exodus 17. And you remember the image there as Moses is seated upon a rock and Aaron and her, one on each side, hold up his arms. And as they hold up his arms, the Israelites prevail. But when his arms are lower, the Israelites begin to experience defeat. The image there is that Moses himself as God's man, as God's person in that moment was unable himself to do this without help. He needed two, one on each side, to hold up his arms that they might be victorious. It's a picture of our inability to do anything to save ourselves. But here the servant says very clearly, as he did in chapter 59, there was no one with me. I trampled all of it alone. I was alone in this great destruction of my enemies. I was alone as I trampled, verse 6, down the peoples in my anger And I made them drunk in my wrath, not that they were literally made drunk, but that they were overcome to a point of absolute stupor of God's wrath. And he poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is a picture of final and great judgment upon the wicked. And the point, again, is simply this. If we are truly to be fully redeemed... Not only are we to receive the blessings of God through Jesus Christ, but we are to know as well the victory that is his and ours over all of our enemies. If you look at Revelation 19 and 20 and 21 and 22, you you see a pattern and a theme develop. Not only are the blessings spoken of in the glory of the new Jerusalem, but the Lord clearly says that there are no enemies who enter into it. There are no one, there's no one who hates God, who hates his word that enters into it. All of his enemies are outside. All of them are utterly destroyed. And this is the picture that we see in Isaiah 63. It is a striking, disturbing picture. But it is a necessary one if we are to know the full measure of God's salvation for us. And so this picture will lead, I think, in the coming week when we study the prayer directly to this prayer. In the prayer, as we'll see uh, the next time together, this theme will come up, a prayer that God's judgment would indeed come and fall upon the wicked and that his deliverance would come as well for those whom he has called. Three things then to note as we close out this, uh, these first six verses. The first is this, and this is an important one, and we see it clearly here, and we can't deny it. God is not indifferent to evil. He is not indifferent to evil. Many times, especially in our own day, the emphasis upon God being simply love is, is raised up to the expense of all his other attributes. You know this, and I know this as well. We hear it all of the time. How could this be our God? How could this be the same God who talks and speaks to us about his love and mercy and kindness? Well, the encouragement we take from this passage and many others like it, because the Bible speaks more of God's wrath, more of his judgment in both Old and New Testament than it does his love, if you will, because it reminds us that God is not indifferent to evil. He hates it. He must hate it because he is who he is. Spurgeon famously said, sin must be punished or God must cease to be. There is no other option. Sin must be punished or God must cease to be. And the qualities, another writer notes, that characterizes God's wrath and his judgment and his justice are these. It is, first and foremost, fair. The Bible pictures God's wrath and justice to be just that, fair, giving to those to whom receive it what they deserve. It is comprehensive. It is far-reaching. It comprehends everything, thoughts and motives and intents of the heart. It is, as we see in these verses, intense. It is intense, and it is final. There is no salvation from this judgment known afterwards. There is no one who survives this judgment and wrath. Not long ago, we began our study in the book, Knowing God, because of J.I. Packer's recent, not so recent now, but his passing, and the men on Thursday mornings are sort of reading through, uh, Knowing God, at least we're reading it, talking about it somewhat, but... Packer says this about his wrath, the active manifestation of God's hatred of irreligion and moral evil, the proper response of a holy God to sin, a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is only angry where anger is called for. And then John Murray writes this, the holy revulsion of God's being, his whole being, against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. This is the God with whom we have to do. A God who cannot stand in the presence of evil and wickedness. You remember the words of Habakkuk the prophet. How can you look upon this evil and not judge it? And God reminds Habakkuk and us as well that he will, in fact, judge the evil. Now, why do we have sometimes... Why do we have, honestly, a problem, and do people have a problem with seeing God like this? Isaiah clearly didn't have a problem writing this and speaking this way about the God who is, but oftentimes we do, and I think ultimately it's for this reason. We really do not see sin to be as evil as it really is. We don't have a view of sin, our sin, and the sin of others, sin in general against a holy God. We don't have a view of it that fits the teachings of God's word. We are often ourselves indifferent to sin, letting sins, what we define as small sins, simply go in our lives without understanding the infinite heinousness of sin itself. there's anyone who understood the nature of sin and the Deserving Wrath That All Sin Deserves, it would be Jonathan Edwards, and he writes this, Sin against God, being a violation of infinite obligations, must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving infinite punishment. If we fail to see the justice of this, it is because we lack a sense of the horrible evil of sin. This leads us to pity the damned wretch and view God badly for bringing this misery upon them. We do this because we haven't sense enough of the evil of sin to stir up indignation enough in us against it. We fail to understand the infinite sinfulness of sin, the infinity of heinousness in wickedness. Now, that's a lot to consider, but it is essentially what I've said, that we don't take sin seriously. We don't see it for what it is. And so our hearts, uh, Edwards seems to say here, our hearts begin to pity the one who is damned and in turn view God badly for bringing such misery upon them. You've heard it put this way. How can a God who is characterized so often as love, possibly do this to anyone that he has ever made and created in his own image? That very question, Edward says, tells us that we have become, in some sense, indifferent to sin. God, being perfectly holy, is not indifferent to sin. He is not. That ought to take us or encourage our hearts as we live in a world that often where we see righteousness fallen in the streets and justice not enacted in this life, that God is not mocked and he is not indifferent to those things. Secondly, and I think this is really the heart of what Isaiah is saying, there is a day according to the scriptures that is appointed for wrath There is a day appointed. There is a day of wrath. Listen to the testimony of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. He's out doing what God had called him to do, baptizing the people. And as they come to him, remember the crowds are gathered around him out to be baptized. He says this. What a welcoming sense. You brood of vipers, he says, who warned you to flee the wrath to come. Who warned you? John answered later in the text saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see the mercy of God, the salvation of God, the gathering of the wheat in his barn, and the judgment and the wrath of God in burning with unquenchable fire the wrath of the chaff that is cast off. John is telling us about the day appointed where Christ will pour out his wrath. In Acts 17, again, another passage, very helpful. The times of ignorance as Paul speaks to the Athenians there. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him, that man, from the dead. There is a day, Paul says, to those uh, wise men who sat there on Mars Hill A day that is fixed on which he will judge the world in righteousness. His wrath is righteous altogether. And then Revelation 6, you remember these striking and fearful words. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones. Here's the picture of the day, the day of his wrath. And the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves And among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand? There is a day, Isaiah tells us here, pictured in this imagery of the uh, watchmen calling out to the victorious warrior approaching the city that there's a day appointed for God's wrath to be poured out. And so there is a warning that goes out into the world. And it's part of the message we take to people, a warning to all that they might turn from their sins as John cried out, that they might turn to the one, the lamb who is able to save them. Jeremiah speaks this way about that day. Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest, and it will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. It's part of the, the nature and being of who God is, as much as his love and kindness and mercy and grace are. Notice again back to our text in verse 5, the wrath that he has against the wicked upheld him, sustained him. Earlier in chapter 59, it was his righteousness. The picture is of his righteous indignation against sin. It upholds him. It is the intent and desire of his heart to punish the wicked as much as it is the intent and desire of his heart to save those whom he has purposed to save. You cannot separate God and divide him. You cannot remove from him some measure of his character and being that is essential, a part of who he is. Isaiah is telling us that in order for him to redeem a people to himself, he must as well destroy their enemies and his as well. That's the general call we make But brother and sister, and especially perhaps to those who may be here this morning who have never come to trust and to find their hope in Christ, listen to these words, the words of Paul, the apostle in Romans chapter 2. He's making his argument here. His argument is that there is none who are guiltless before God. All are guilty. And listen to these words. They're strong words aimed at the hearts of all of those who remain in their rebellion against God. Do you suppose, O man, do you suppose, O woman, you who judge those who practice such things that is evil and yet do them yourself? Remember chapter one and the evil described there that you will escape somehow the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. These are terrifying words. They talk about the kindness and mercy of God designed by God to lead sinners to repentance, to be drawn to him in his love and favor. But if in the hardness and impenitence of our hearts, we refuse that kindness, there is a day where his patience will end and a day of wrath will come. And what we are doing if we live in that hardened state is we are storing up for ourselves Wrath for that day of wrath. I can't even begin in my mind to put my thoughts around what that means, to to store up for ourselves the wrath of God, that it might be all the more poured out against us. And yet this is what the scriptures teach, and what Paul so strongly presses in Romans chapter two. There is a day, all of those who hear me, there is a day appointed. It is set, as it were, in stone. It will come to pass. God will not relent. And Isaiah tells us in these verses that it will be poured out by the one who comes as victor, victorious champion and king, our servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a day then appointed for this wrath which leads me, of course, to where we have to go, to the cross, to the cross, to the cross, to the cross, and to the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the only place we can flee. The cross is the answer to it all. It is where wrath and mercy meet, where they kiss together, as has been famously said. It is where hope is found on that day, It is the only place to be safe. It is the rock that is cleft. It is in Jesus that we are safe. Why and how? Because this victorious king and this victorious champion and warrior who comes with the blood of his enemies, having conquered all of them, is the same warrior and conquering king who submitted himself to his father's will on behalf of his own people who was willing to take the full measure of the wrath that they deserve upon himself on that tree becoming a curse for us so that we might know his righteousness. The cross is where wrath and mercy meet. Wrath to Christ for our sins. Mercy to us because of God's love and kindness. It is the only place that you can flee. And I plead with you this morning, the only place where you must flee. The famous, like Jonathan Edwards, like Charles Spurgeon, and so many like them before and after, would all end in the same place. You must flee, they would cry, to the conquering one here in this picture, because it's through him that your punishment has been sated, satiated, satisfied where God's wrath has been fully poured out from you, for you if you would but believe and trust in him. And so it is to the cross, to the cross, and to the cross that we must go. This brief section, then, of six verses will give, you, give way to a very lengthy prayer that we'll look at next time as we come to our study and in view of the infinite and eternal wrath of God against sinners. The one who prays in those verses will pray that indeed that day would come, that God would hasten it, because it means for the remnant their deliverance. They will pray that God would remember his mercy on that day to his people. They will cry out to him that he might rend the heavens and come down and that the nations might tremble at his presence. As we watch, as we pray, that ought to be our prayer as well. One final quote, and it comes from a very famous work. Many of you have read it, are reading it. A.W. Pink's Attributes of God, a standard work on the character and nature of God, says this. It's a wonderful summary, and then we'll close. The wrath of God is a perfection of the divine nature, and character on which we need to meditate frequently. First, that our hearts may be duly impressed by God's hatred of sin. We are always prone to regard sin lightly, to gloss over its hideousness, to make excuses for sin. But the more we study and ponder God's abhorrence of sin and his frightful vengeance upon it, the more likely we are to realize its heinousness. Second, to beget a true fear in our souls for God. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We cannot serve him acceptably unless there is due reverence for his awful majesty and a godly fear of his righteous anger. And these are best promoted by frequently calling to mind that our God is a consuming fire. And third, to draw out our soul in fervent praise to Jesus Christ for having delivered us from the wrath to come. Our readiness or our reluctancy to meditate upon the wrath of God becomes a sure test of how our hearts really stand with respect to him. May the Lord grant us grace to know this, our God. This is the God with whom we have to do. This is our glorious King and Savior, our victorious warrior. Let us pray. Our Father, humble our hearts under these things, we pray may we rightly reflect and remember that you are as much a God of wrath as you are a God of love. For This is part of the God with whom we have to do, the God who has revealed himself here in his word. Humble us under your mighty hand. Help us to remember that you are our God, to see in you the victory that is ours in Christ and the victorious Savior that he is over all his enemies and ours. We rejoice and give you thanks and pray that you would work in our hearts and to draw us even closer to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.